We're back with plenty to talk about on this episode of Doll Capital. Today, you're listening to the ever-sharp cutter of BS, Amy Haddad, and the never-indomitable Jacob Thornton. I cannot be indominated. You can't be indominated. That's right, Jacob. And me, Ben Halliday. We're recording tonight in on the land of the Ngunnawal people and pay our respects to their elders past and present and future, whose sovereignty was never ceded and who we express our solidarity to ending continuing injustices for Aboriginal people in uh, this country. So, what have we got on today? So, uh, we've got three things uh, up on the chopping block. First, we're going to talk about uh, COVID-19, patents, vaccines on the global scene. Uh, why is there such extreme inequity between the vaccine rollouts in rich and poor countries? Um, what role is Australia playing? How awful is Bill Gates and Big Pharma? Um, secondly, we're going to talk about the Australian federal budget, um, inequality, and um, are we all taking the pink pill? Uh, and thirdly, we're going to talk about, a bit about um, New South Wales Labor and um, your piece that's just come out in uh, Jacobin Australia. Yes, it has. Very yeah. exciting. Well, for me. Congrats anyway. on that. But yeah, yeah. No, I was happy about that. And thank you to the Jacobin <laughs> for um, tolerating me. Yeah. So um, stick with us. We'll be right back with all that on Dog Capital. And we're at a moment where sort of all, all contradictions are made. So I've got it to the crisis of contemporary capitalism. We find ourselves in Politics. Classic fucking boomer. Only left maintaining the relations of neoliberalism. Capital. Go. Capital. Go. Capital. Go. 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 international, but we're from cameras. Okay. So, um, COVID patents um, and the awful behaviour of Big Pharma. Um, so, just to set this up, um, between about February and April 2020, there was a race between two competing models for managing the equitable distribution of vaccines uh, and treatments for COVID-19. Um, first, you had the World Health Organization's COVID-19 Technology Access Pool, or CTAP, which was a facility through which the public and private institutions um, you know, around the world that were developing um, vaccines and, and technology around COVID could pool their knowledge and their tech, um, which would then be free from patent protections so that um, you know, work being done wouldn't be needlessly duplicated and resources could be distributed cheaply to all. Weeks before CTAP could launch, however, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, partnering with a host of financial and pharmaceutical giants, launched the competing scheme, uh, COVAX, uh, which would appeal to countries and vaccine producers to make charitable donations of surplus vaccines to be distributed to low and middle income countries. And crucially, it promised full protection on intellectual property rights. COVAX proved to dramatically undermine CTAP by providing companies with a strong incentive to cling to their vaccine IP. And as of May 2021, not a single COVID-19 vaccine patent holder has shared its technology with CTAP. What's worse, COVAX is also completely failing to meet its quite modest target of distributing 2 billion vaccines globally by the end of 2021. As of mid-May, uh, it has distributed only 61 million, with an M. Uh, then, in the last few weeks, uh, some new developments. Under intense pressure, the Biden administration has finally signaled support for waiving TRIPS, which is the IMF's Agreement on Trade-Related Intellectual Property Rights. Edit Bay correction, TRIPS falls under the aegis of the World Trade Organization, not the IMF, uh, in relation to COVID vaccines, uh, but it's worth noting not on treatments or diagnostics. This is the piece of international trade regulation which CTAP was founded to circumvent and which Bill Gates has personally fought tooth and nail for over a year to uphold. Then, um, around the same time as Biden's announcement, uh, Gates himself finally changed his mind and announced support for the TRIPS waiver um, after about a full year of fighting against it. 
Um, so I think that pretty much brings us up to now. Um, Amy, you spoke recently really well um, at our local Labor sub-branch on this issue. Um, so um, tell us what your take is on it and um, can you like fill us in on where Australia is currently at in this whole mess? Thanks, Jacob and Ben. And oh, and welcome to the show. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> thanks for having Hello, me Amy. again. Um, and just a little correction, it's actually the World Trade Organization, not the IMF that oh, runs that troops. Yeah, yeah, okay. That, that's, I mean, look, mm. we can put them in the same basket. Mm. It's all cool. Um, but yeah, great question. We, we discussed this at our sub-branch in the context of Australia's uh, investment in local production of, uh, of vaccines and and the fairly solid argument that if we're investing public funding into that process then we should have a public good that, that stems from that rather than that good returning to um, the private sector. This is not a new discussion though in um, equitable access to uh, to health treatment and, and to vital medicines in particular um, and the, the, the TRIPS agreement has been a blocker to that for a really long time and there's there's precedent particularly around the HIV AIDS um, epidemic to waive the TRIPS uh, agreement under emergency um, scenarios so that generic medicines can be made Mm. Um, and so the precedent is there and in fact that's where the generic medicine um, sort of production and and, and sort of India's position in that space comes from um, is because of some leadership in in India saying, look, we can produce this. We just don't have the intellectual property rights to it. So there's definitely, uh, you know, global agreement in the international community uh, that where there's a a health crisis or a humanitarian crisis, then we should be waiving those those agreements. Um, I think what's really quite stunning about this conversation uh, is not just that the U.S., got there before Australia did in terms of saying, you know what, let's waive it, but that it's taken more than a year for the penny to drop on mm. that. Like that's, that's, this isn't rocket science. We knew this was going to happen. Um, and we've been here before. Um, I was at the UN in uh, when, the, when the Ebola outbreak happened. And there was a whole conversation at the time, not necessarily about troops, but about the fact that the money that stems from um, vaccine production is uh, is a private sector good that returns to shareholders, and that's why there was no interest at the time in creating an Ebola virus, uh, an Ebola vaccine, because there's no profit in it. So this connection between access to health um, and profitability in the private sector is an old one. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there for now, and then yeah, we can yeah, talk yeah. a little bit about what up Australia. But well. Uh, yeah, but also the, like these companies, the, the, the sort of monopoly patent holders, are the same companies that we hear about in the news in Australia, um, in the US, that are charging $1,000 for EpiPens, you know, and price gouging on insulin. Like, mm. It's the same, it's actually literally the same people that have been sort of entrusted with, um, yeah, doling out or, you know, hawking. Yeah, um, and, and they're the IP companies that these, yeah. will invest in erectile dysfunction but not curing yeah, cancer or right. malaria. Yeah. Um, so... We don't need to act too shocked mm. that this is that this is where we've landed. Um, I think what's interesting is the the US finally sort of joining the call, and this is quite important, though not the first time they've done that. Um, but as far as I can tell, Australia hasn't joined yeah. uh, in in that in that acceptance that these circumstances are, are special and need need special consideration. And I to me, I find that quite fascinating because Australia's tended to follow the US in these sorts of discussions. Um, but it also, I guess, back to your, your previous point about CTAP versus COVAX, mm. um, 
you know, time and again in the international development community, um, in those circles around, you know, what does social justice and poverty alleviation look like? We look at crises as opportunities to shift the playing field and to change the structures around these things. Um, and time and again, that opportunity is squashed by people saying, well, no, we can help you, but only within the status quo mm. and only in so much as we return to the status quo mm. as soon as possible. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a bit shit, really. So with like what's, what's, uh, what Australia is doing, um, what kind of a contribution has Australia made uh, to COVAX? And because um, we know that, like, yeah, the Australian mm. government, as you said, have been reticent to announce any kind of support for the TRIPS waiver, um, which is kind of surprising given, given yeah, what a sort of toadying uh, <laughs> sort of posture they usually take in relation to like anything in terms of US foreign policy. But um, yeah, as, what about as far as, you know, the Bill Gates's big uh, voluntary charitable sort of scheme? to have countries distributing their, their surplus doses. What's Australia been doing? Yeah, as, as, yeah, that's a great question. Um, Australia joined COVAX quite early. Um, and if you look at the, I think it's the Department of Health website, um, we can see that Australia uh, contributed $80 million to, I guess, the charitable side of COVAX. So that's the bit that prioritises um, vaccines into low-income countries. Mm -hmm. But we also chucked in $123 million for priority access for Australians. So it was a bit of a, yes. uh, a bit of a Bob each way right. there. And at the time, I recall that there was some there was some good rhetoric from Australia saying it was important that we shared. Um, Australia was obviously very focused on the Pacific and the vulnerability of the Pacific, mm. um, you know, as we should be. Um, but the rhetoric was about let's come together, common effort, common good, mm. um, you know, sharing what we need to, blah, blah, blah. So I was kind of like, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty good. That's the footing that we need to be on. So to then see us, you know, a year and a half down the track resisting a trips waiver is like, well, how does that yep. rhetoric yep. Um, match not, up? They're not even looking after Australian capital. It's not like Woodside Petroleum, you know, like spying on behalf of Woodside or something like that. It's like, it's like a new, it's foreign capital, you know, that it's bizarre to me. Yeah, it doesn't feel super strategic. Yeah. Um, and Austra Australia made big contributions into into Gavi as well. So yeah. Gavi is a global vaccine alliance, yeah. Yeah. Um, of which Gates is a significant sure. donor as well, and which yeah. also includes private sector um, donorship. And then I actually was looking up the stats for this discussion, um, and Gates is a significant contributor to the World Health Organization mm -hmm. as well. And in fact, in 1819, contributed 12% of the World Health Organization's total budget. Mm. So so there are mm. kind of these, you know, between the WHO and Gavi and COVAX and all of these mechanisms, they are inter they are interrelated between um, sort of private donorship, um, private sort of private sector interests, mm. bilateral donors like Australia and the US, all kind of mashed up in this very interesting sort of set of, um, set of relationships. Mm. So I'm not that surprised that we've landed here, to be honest. Yeah. I'm a little bit surprised that Australia's taken this long to get on board with the TRIPS waiver. Mm. Um, but I, like you read some of the analysis now, and there's a, there's a sense of disappointment that we didn't use this as a structural change moment. Mm. It's like, yeah, that's really disappointing, but <laughs> but also probably a bit naive, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, one of the things I find really perplexing um, about Bill Gates with his stuff, and you mentioned there, he's a he's a big donor to the World Health Organization. It seems that some of the the coverage it blew me away because I didn't realise this. I knew he was like he's often presented as this philanthropic, mm. you know, do-gooder in the uh, health sort of development sphere. Is just how just a, a, a hand in everything, uh, and what we've got as a result of 
this sort of advocacy going on. I mean, we, I think um, we're not that long. I mean, the, the, the crisis in India still, still continues, might have died down, but no one's really paying attention anymore. Who knows how many people have died um, without access to vaccines and the, and the like. Um, when, when did Bill Gates become Dr. Evil? I, I mean, most people just thought that Bill Gates was like, you know, oh, yeah, this guy did my PC. Yeah, he got rich. It's yeah. kind of fair enough. Yeah. And oh, now a lot of people are like, oh, you know, the main attention for the courtroom media is the fact that he's getting divorced. Cause, mm. And one of the reasons apparently is because he's, he's apparently his he's former well, wife who wants to be divorced um, was a bit uncomfortable, the idea that he was um, a mates with a convicted pedophile. Like yeah. it's it's like, that's oh, oh, it, that's an issue mm. that people want to discuss. Not the fact that Bill Gates has been there with his uh, interfering and um, pe- countries being able to have access to IP to provide a vaccine to... The biggest pandemic in a hundred years. Well, not not just a convict, a, not just a convicted pedophile, but like the specific one that everybody knows now was sort of using his friendships with high-profile scientists, other philanthropists, people in yeah, like global health and other kinds of you know NGOs sectors to launder himself. We don't have to get into like all the Epstein conspiracies. No, we don't need to. Though I, though I would love to. Um, but <laughs> yeah, but basically joke. that he's, a, he, <laughs> you know, it's, he's someone who's like insinuated himself into these, these like elite circles and that like yeah. that was a core part of his whole operating model, you know. Um, but with, no, with Gates, like um, the thing is that his, his fortune does rest on the aggressive abuse of IP law. Which is the same thing that he's been doing now in fighting against like trip wave, trips waiver and stuff. Mm. So in like in the early two thousands, Microsoft was investigated by the U.S. government under antitrust law um, because they were basically manipulating um, Windows software um, in anti-competitive ways, right. all kinds of things. But yeah. um, he came out of that looking really bad. Um, and so um, there's that story in the New Republic, which we've used as a source for this um, this episode. Um, which covers a lot of his personal history, but um, the point they make is that he came out of that really scarred and looking to rehabilitate his image. And a big part of that was um, he's like throwing himself into global philanthropy. What, what do you think health and development, Amy? Why, why do you think he's, he's gotten into that in a big way? And I mean, other than just the crude Dr. Yeah. Evil. Like, look, I think, like, look, I wouldn't go with, I wouldn't go with Dr. Evil. No. Um, I, no, I'd we, go with more like Duck McScrooge. Like, uh, his, I think yeah. I think what we're talking about here is let's just zoom out a little bit. He's operating within that sort of historical philanthropic vibe that's very, yeah. you know, US. Yeah. Um, mm. Super super rich, have some money, can therefore make this contribution. But mm. he's not he's not seeking to change anything in that, or or to admit that. He came, you know, he accumulated this wealth in any untoward way. Rather, it's like, I'm so great at accumulating wealth that I can distribute it to others. So th- there's a built-in structural reform limit in that in that model. Um, you know, whether that's evil or not is up for debate, but I don't think he's doing it to be evil, He's but he's not doing it to change the status quo. He's not doing it so that... Mm. You know, he's not sitting there going, every, every billionaire is a policy failure. Mm. He's saying every billionaire should be a... F- philanthropist and therefore yeah. let's create more billionaires and hope that they do some philanthropy yeah he hasn't heard of um, taxation yeah yeah and you know Clippy's popping up and saying it looks like we're trying to do some structural reform is going hell no yeah. close that out mm. um why global health and development because the need is there it's an it, it's an yeah. it's a relatively easy pathway within international development it's it's kind of one of the sectors that's been sort of captured by people like jeffrey sachs mm. who can sort of point to 
kind of one and done type activities which are themselves not structural it's like if we can just cure polio Mm. maybe we could find a cure for vaccine for malaria get some vaccines into the kiddies those are things that you can do in a kind of um unitized um you know uh you know value chain and supply chain kind of a way you can do them in partnership with the private sector so there's profitability there yeah. and there's absolutely no structural change necessary <laughs> um you don't have to have a you don't have to have a conversation about whether there's some broader inequities that need to be mm. dealt with so as as a way to splash cash in a fair you know quite impactful but not very structurally um you know uh challenging sort of a way global health is definitely where mm. i'd be putting my money mm. if, if that's what i want to do and it is it's profitable um and you can see that he's working with um, the private sector, the private sector of big donors to Gavi, as I said, um, it helps get uh, a footprint for those companies into those emerging health systems and those health sectors in those in those developing countries. So here's my question. Uh, so you got like now there's like a kind of messy Gates divorce happening. In like, <laughs> you guys are so, so gossipy. It's so, I'm here yeah, to talk well, about equity, it, and you it, want to talk about pedophiles? No, but here's, my, here's my question. Here's my question. <laughs> so um, the Gates Foundation has really like managed to as an umbrella kind of swallow up a huge proportion of the sort of like global health NGO sector Um, and a lot of people in some of the articles we've been sort of reading for this um, refer to it as kind of like a cult where it's very important when you're doing work there that it's very important you don't like challenge the like core kind of um, line um, that that Bill and Melinda Gates take on any big issue Um, and it's kind of about protecting their reputations as you go about doing the public health work that you're doing um, and so, yeah, the reason I bring up their divorce is that, like, a big part of kind of that is that it seems like Melinda Gates has got a PR firm p- putting out dirt on, on Bill Gates, talking about his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, his sort of, like, you know, gaslighting behavior or whatever. Um, and so his his reputation is, like, in for, like, a big... Mm. It's going gonna, gonna to tank, right? Mm. And that's going to, like, probably have a meaningful impact on the activities of their foundation, it might be broken up it might be just maybe it'll just be renamed or something but like I don't know I just that's what I wanted to ask is like what's the kind of if you you probably know much more than we do about like um, sort of structure and I don't know like the goings on at the top sort Mm. of international or intergovernmental level of like those kinds of NGOs like is that going to have like a, a meaningful footprint you know on the whole scene up there if it goes pear shaped for sure yeah um they're hugely influential uh, during the negotiation of the Sustainable Development Goals. They, the, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation partnered with The Guardian to produce mm-hmm. a series of actually amazingly helpful for me. I do on them a lot, um, but a regular series of like what up with the SDG negotiations, kind of taking it sector by sector, explaining what it means to people, um, really accessible um, comms that were pretty much focused on kind of building a... Um, I guess public support for the process of the SDGs and public support for the idea of you know international international aid and development, which was super handy. But it, I mean, for me, it raises a question: that, Does that mean the Guardian's never going to investigate this particular organisation? And their mm. and and their lobbying um, capacity is sh- super schmick. Um, but I looked at their website today. It's really quite difficult to understand what they do, and I'm used to looking at um, you know the annual reports of 
member state organisations or donors, which kind of are, you know have quite a lot of transparency about them. But I couldn't. Isn't it enough for them to just say that they're making the world a better place? Well, I looked at their financials <laughs> and I couldn't understand <laughs> it. It was only fifteen pages long. Um, but the question, I mean, the question around whether there's a, a kind of a ripple in their operations because. Bill and Melinda are divorcing, I think, remains to be seen. But from my experience, Melinda was a driver of the gender equality focus of mm. the of the foundation. Um, and it would be kind of interesting to take that baton ball and go home um, for both of them. Like, I don't think it would look well for either of them if that if that happened. But, we, I mean, my, my experience, and I'm fairly sure there are others who would back me here, is that commitment to these things um, requires commitment in the senior leadership. Mm-hmm. So if it turns out that that commitment is not so strong in Bill and Melinda walks away with it, then we could find that there's a bit of a gap in, in how they operate there. So that would be the area that I'm watching really closely and you know possibly what you could see falling out of that is you know a bit of a swinging away from some of the investment in the um, sexual reproductive health um, and and rights sort of area that they that they invest in or you know maybe the spoils of the divorce is that she gets the lady stuff and and he gets the other stuff and you know that's that's how it goes but I don't know. I've never been in a divorce where people had PR people, so I'm not I'm not quite sure how to comment on I've that. I've never been in a divorce at all. So, yeah. um, so I guess there's one, one last thing that I was, was thinking about, you know, COVID stuff and, and Australia. is like um, Australia like has a history of doing very cynical, um, like soft power aid stuff in the region. And like you mentioned before about how Australia has been mainly focused on regional vaccine rollout mm. stuff. Um, so wondering as well what you think about like the potential for some fairly cynical um, and maybe unethical kind of vaccine diplomacy happening with Australia kind of like trying to play small poor Pacific nations off against China particularly in the next maybe year or so my sense is that's actually not where the playoff happens right. um, you know to the extent that there's a playoff with China and we can we can have that conversation and you know whether it's ethical or not is a separate conversation again um, but China's not that active in the health space they're kind of fooling around with you know built infrastructure and those sorts of things um, and I don't know that Australia that China's got a deep interest about whether the Pacific is racked by COVID where, where Australia does mm. Um, and we do for a range of reasons, some of which are self-interested, but some of which are because we've been donor and, and sort of development partners in these countries for a really long time, and we don't want to see that go backwards because we'll have to keep being that donor, and, you know, at some point we've got to peel out of those situations, and um, avoiding a COVID catastrophe is definitely one way of making sure that sure that happens. Um, so my sense, if I was looking for cynicism in aid-granting vaccines is probably mm. not where where I would be seeing that um, and I think the you know the fact that the government's done things like deploy or divert Australian kind of tagged vaccines to places like PNG mm. I mean that's a that's a tricky sell if you're not that committed to the well-being of that country sure. so I'd be looking at other yeah. areas for yeah. cynicism not vaccines and <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and like uh, um, like FIFO work and stuff that kind of thing all right well, shall we move on yeah yeah i mean yeah like, i mean look it's um uh, well, it's fascinating in terms of mm. just how stark the um i mean the takeouts for me is just literally how stark um 
basically you know providing support for the poorest countries in the world is in terms mm. of um, when it comes runs up to the interests of you know big multinational countries and uh, companies and the mm. countries that they control and influence and yeah, it's mm. it's it's incredible the other, other thing about film film property sort of stuff it just it's such a there was such an early thing for the socialist movement around the world was literally talk about taxation mm. and that you know charity really you know like the livelihood or the the well-being of people shouldn't be determined by how you know nice some crazy rich person is feeling towards um you know the downtrodden it's it's just yeah, appalling just if there's ever a, an argument around more state um involvement exactly. this is this is this is it exactly it's essentially and a conversation about what role should the yeah. state have and i'm sure we, you know we definitely want to come back to this one mm. again and again to talk about health and, and um, i mean you know development in inverted commas because sometimes i've I don't know. So it is a, a political um, term, really, yeah, as well, because we often gets couched in, in the well countries like Australia as development is often seen as like, oh, we want to make them like us, and it's like, yeah, but really, isn't it better to actually help mm, people um, mm. make their own decisions oh. about how they want to become more modern in you know whatever let's, that let's means? Let's put it. Let's put yeah. a date in the diary we'll for a whole one. podcast on, on white colonialist uh, yeah. development practices. But one thing that we haven't touched on that we can maybe circle back to in, an, in mm-hmm. another conversation is inherent if we if we just focus on the domestic side for the moment um you know what's up with completely defunding universities over many years yeah. including in this budget right yeah. in the middle of a crisis of um manufacturing and research in our own country yeah. um and there's been no investment in that and it exposes us to significant weakness um and risk in the uh, in the global marketplace as we've seen mm. um so it's it's fascinating that at the same time we're resisting a tra- tra- mm-hmm. troops waiver we're not doing anything to you know t- to steady our own risk in the face of um poor practices for I, private this is enterprise. why it's great to have amy on she knows how to do a lousy link yeah. <laughs> segway yeah. bang we just we're getting in the budget here yeah. man we didn't even plan yeah, that we case. didn't it was really good no so look um Look, for, for our listeners, I'm sure, yes, the federal budget has recently happened. There was all sorts of interesting things. It's been hailed by some as one of the best budgets ever. Uh, and by others, it spends too much, which is a bizarre one you, when you've got some Labor politicians talking about too much spending, uh, which is in itself a, an interesting debate, uh, discussion to have. But one of, one of the key things, I mean, look, the university sector, and Amy's hammered that one, it's it's in absolute crisis in terms of the knowledge sector in this country. If there ever was there a, a legitimate reason for an argument about research and development and investment in knowledge, this is this mm. is the time. And I'm no, I'm not talking about this idea that we just have the diaspora of Southeast Asia um, pay for their education in Australia and then leave. Um, no, we're talking about you know actual investment in you know for the benefit of everyone. I think you know including people from overseas to come and study here. And education should and be a study right. Study and research here. Study and research it mm. should be a right, not a privilege. Is pretty much where I'm coming from there. Um, but the other thing has been the um, pink washing uh, of the federal budget. As Alison Pennington in her piece of the New Daily, she writes, um, uh, "Why I won't swallow the pink budget pill." And so look, it's a good little article that one and I think that sort of gets into uh, what we want to sort of mention about that Amy um, what was mm. how, this this pink budget stuff like yeah, Alison what happened not alone there, there. Yeah. Um, look oh I just I kind of I don't know whether to laugh or cry about this because we <laughs> it's like we predicted it like women always do um, 
you know, very it was, intuitive. It was so intuitive. We can feel it in our waters, <laughs> in, our, in our budget waters, um, that we're going to get fucked over by the patriarchy and told to like it. Um, so the fact that, like, it was it was obvious that the government was going to try and pull something out of a hat to deal with its, um, you know, lady problems. Um, it was also obvious that they've got zero capacity to understand what that looks like and probably very little interest in a sort of a structural response to that. Um, so you saw that, uh, you know, most of the budget leaks in the, in the lead up to the budget were sort of in that, um, in that zone of, um, you know, throwing a bone to the, to the women of Australia. Um, Alison's analysis afterwards, which was, nah, I don't reckon this is great. Um, she was certainly not the only person to come up with that analysis, and you know, I've, I've seen I've seen that on on various um, on various fronts. And I think sort of the sort of the main two criticisms, which are kind of somewhat joined, is um, if you look at uh, total budget spending that you could conceivably sort of tag as going towards women, it was 0.6 percent of total budget. Um, and fifty percent of that was childcare, which is not just a not women's problem. Just women. <laughs> no, yeah. it turns out those kids sometimes have dads as well. Um, so it, it was made to sound very big, but in, in you know proportionality, not nah, not really. And then very little of it dealt with the structural issues mm. that we're seeing. Um, so there was pretty much nothing to deal with the fact. Um, that women are in low-paid, feminised, casualised um, employment. Um, to the extent that they dealt with superannuation, they did it like there was like a marginal positive change, but but nothing structural. Um, there were some, frankly, kind of wacky uh, proposals uh, around, uh, you know, 2% deposits for you know, home loans for single parents who obviously are just rolling in cash and, <laughs> and will only help as a cap at 10,000 yeah. people. So it's yeah. like, that's not a huge, so that's not a huge yeah, so issue. It's, it's, it just means you, you only need to save 2% for a deposit on a mortgage. Is that basically... Yeah. Well, yeah, just, you know, sign up for a lifetime of housing yeah. affordability stress. Yeah. Yeah. And look, that policy is not inherently bad. It's just kind of useless in isolation. Mm. Mm. So there's definitely... Um, you know, a point that happens and it's a gendered point where, you know, families break down um, and there's an opportunity right at that point where women could probably buy the house they were in or take whatever their property settlement was and get into the housing market mm. kind of instantly. And the longer they wait, obviously, the more they're drawing down on those, on their, on those savings, the more they're going, they're paying that off in rent and, the, you know, the more expensive housing is going. So there's an opportunity at that moment to kind of help women not go backwards at that point. But that's a very specific group of women. So that's mm. a group of women who've come out of that with a job high enough to pay their mortgage going mm. forward, um, with a property settlement that equals some kind of um, some kind of um, uh, deposit. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's a moment there, but you know, absent the other, you know, there are much deeper issues in housing affordability for women um, associated with age and escaping violence mm-hmm. in particular, and with the fact that women are overrepresented in poor households that we could have dealt with. This was a weird way to go, mm. um, unless of course <laughs> what you want to do is like do some sweetness for you know people who, women who might have voted you know, liberal if they didn't hate them for the last six months and maybe this helps them forget that. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. But only if they split up. But it sounds like uh, yeah, as, far weird, as, right? as far as like, um, yeah, optics, you know, of the budget and this like idea of like the pink 
pink budget and um in, yeah in the general even like the kind of liberal um like public sphere it's not doesn't seem to have really taken hold at all like can't and say i've seen any, any very famous yeah. favorable feminist commentary and most of it's kind of half-assed as well so the big ticket item was the childcare funding mm. um but it's kind of less than half what you need to, to do, really. And there's no conversation around that about, like, a mm-hmm. deep structural reform to childcare, which really, like, badly needs to happen. Mm-hmm. So they didn't loosen any of the disincentive screws around that. They didn't make it easier to access. They haven't reduced the activity test. Um, and it only goes to the second kid. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah, um, so it's not universal mm-hmm. free childcare. No, it doesn't. It's been a... a, a demand of the, the left for, yeah. for decades mm. now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and let's do let's do a little comparison because I've got some figures here. It was $1.7 billion for childcare funding from 2022, so mm-hmm. they're delaying that. Um, that's, that compares to the $18 billion for the uh, business tax write-off. Yeah. Which So everyone well, gets to buy a ute, yeah. but they can't put their kid well, in childcare. Don't, don't we spend, like, um, don't we spend, like, $70 million on um, like those big tires for the big trucks on the in the coal mines. Well, I don't know. That we, like do that. we do we oh, fund those or just yeah, pretty, pretty much. I think we do basically. <laughs> like propping yeah. up a number of you know, inefficient. Some, yeah, it's wild. Carbon causing it. Yeah. But yeah, there was there were some big sort of structural things that have been that have been looked at, um, and you know, really articulate. Uh, sort of proposal put forward around these. And so those are those are around things like gender responsive budgeting. Um, so the government came out with a women's budget statement, but that's not gender budget, that's not gender responsive budgeting. That's just a list of stuff that, you know, might help women. Um, really dealing with childcare. So they kind of got half the way there, but not really. And the other really big thing that people have been talking about is um, amping up access to parental leave for men, mm-hmm. um, which which would have huge structural benefits, yep. mm-hmm. um, including into how kind of workforce cultures work. It would, it would be a Absolutely. real sort of reset that would have flow-on effects into how men and women perform in compete in the workplace as well. And we didn't see any of that. Um, we didn't see any of the stuff around super. So... They ditched the um, the threshold um, of four hundred and fifty dollars, yeah, isn't it? Four hundred and seventy bucks a month. So they've ditched they've ditched the floor on super, which is good. Like that was mm. one of the things that we were talking mm. about, mm. and that'll but see. But in general, we don't want people making less than four hundred and seventy dollars a month, anyway. Yeah. So we didn't <laughs> we didn't balance out yeah. what happens to the wage in that scenario. Right. We didn't we didn't balance out any of the precarity yeah. of any, of people who are working in jobs that only yeah. that only earn that much. Um, what about mm. super during mat leave? That's been on the table mm-hmm. for a long yep. time. We're not seeing about that. What about um, you know greater greater benefits to well, women that leads into as they reach retirement? So the, yeah. so sorry, just let yeah, me finish. Yeah, okay. um, so those structural things that would help us move away from a situation where. Um, Women are still facing huge amounts of violence, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, facing huge amounts of cri- uh, housing stress, are overrepresented in underpaid, insecure work, and we're the fastest growing group of homeless people in Australia are elder, mm-hmm. older women, where you've got one in three women retiring with no retirement savings at all. Those are big structural issues that are yeah. not going to get any better, and this budget really has done nothing to, to address mm-hmm. any yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, spot on. And look, the, the super thing, like the $470 a month, that's like basically if you if you have a casual job and you earn more than $470 in a month, they'll pay you super. Now, it's okay, nice to clean that up mm. um, because there are people out there, I mean, mm. um, that's fine. 
but really the, the fundamentally goes back to the whole thing that the wages are so bad the the, the crisis of wage um, increases in Australia is probably the worst since the 1930s from, mm. from what mm-hmm. I've read uh, and as you've really succinctly put Amy like as a, and a lot of commentators point out um, 65% of the uh, of all women's um, jobs are in the low income mm. uh, and middle income service industries mm. like hospitality, retail, health and care and social services and wages are going nowhere mm. and the, coupled with wages also influences the amount of superannuation people are going to be paid which means you're earning less super and without the superannuation payments on the unpaid component of maternity leave or in parental mm. leave um, you're falling behind again it's not really it's not a mystery that the women end up with less super it's structurally built into the system mm. and we know that it can be fixed because there were brief glimpses there were a couple of years that you there where uh, the public sector union and federally managed to win um, payments on unpaid mat leave mm. in this federal, federal sphere as well as in the the union in the finance sector but um, that's been rolled back and taken away, and that was one of the first things that the Abbott government was super keen to, to rip up. So there's really some real nuts and bolts stuff that needs to be rectified there. Mm-hmm. I, and I, and Al- I think Alison um, has a great stat that proves the biases that are built into the system. So when we look at tax concessions for super, that's tw- uh, $29.5 billion in tax concessions for men, yeah. <laughs> thanks guys, compared yep. to 70.8 billion to women. Mm. Yeah. So there's just, there are just biases built into this system. And, and the other thing that I didn't mention is that the um, stage three ta- income tax um, cuts yep. overwhelmingly benefit yep. men. By a much bigger ratio than Huge the, ratio. Yeah, you just yeah. mentioned. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Um, another thing that I always love um, with uh, when budgets come out is having a look at the um, the wage uh, growth um, estimates because um, they're always hilarious. You know, um, picture if you will, dear listener, a graph where there's a black line that runs from sort of the top left quadrant and slowly goes down as we move forward in time to now, and then off that black line there are coloured lines which um, spring off the black line up into the stratosphere, um, and those represent the estimates every budget year that the government comes out with and every year the black line keeps going down but every year they put up a a nice line that goes up um but this time they actually didn't do that they've basically just given up i think they've just given up on bullshitting us about wage growth and this time um the budget's um wage estimates are they're going to go down it's just going to get worse Mm. and uh yeah it's and I think um, it sort of leads us to the more general topic about, well, where do we go from mm. with, with this situation? Because obviously, um, I guess, I think it really does uh, put the final nail in the coffin that the Libs or the Tories had somehow learnt from the COVID crisis and decided, you know, and thought, yeah, we should provide some income support to the poor and we should, you know, do a couple mm. of things to, to help out. Um, no, like this. This is a just a yet, yet again another budget where it's a, a the the poor are paying more tax than the big corporations and the rich, and that burden's been doubly put on uh, to women in the working class, and that's happening. Um, and at the same time, the subsidies to to big business uh, is insane. The propping up of the fossil industry is is you know really nutty stuff. People can read more things about it. So. Um, those are going on there. Um, I, th- I think we're getting into the realm of like getting into the topic we like talking about. Is like, well, 
the the medium term stuff and then the long term stuff and I know one thing we like talking about a little bit and we won't talk about that is like if there was ever an argument there needs to be a living income for people given the casualisation uh, of um, and proliferation of insecure work probably right now would be you know a time that labour should be investigating it and I would say it would be controversial for some because some people still think it's the 1980s uh, demand saying a job for all um, isn't necessarily the best demand that mm. we need right mm. now what we need is income um, mm. to, to get by what do you reckon Amy? You know I love this I love it a lot um, so I'm just going to say the words four day week so yes. look yes. go four for day gold week. three day uh, week I comrades. Like to call it three day <laughs> three, three day week um, <laughs> But I, just, I want to kind of put this in a little bit of context, and I think um, the wonderful Dan Tian helped us with this on uh, Insiders yesterday when, uh, in the context of the latest Victorian lockdown, asked the question, what are you going to do to help casual workers who've got no work this week? He said, I'll just, just pop on down to Centrelink, yeah. which <laughs> was just a, like a stunning yeah. a yeah. stunning own goal in revealing that he's got no fucked. idea yeah. how Centrelink yeah. works, yeah. that he's actually got no idea of both the reality of navigating that process or of actually how hard it is mm. um, I think it was a, to deal, to honest, actually even yeah. access yeah. welfare I, in this country. I read that as like a, just a blatant attempt to like bullshit his way through that interview. Like... Because he's like, yeah, just go on Centrelink. David Spears was like, well, you can't get any Centrelink if you don't have COVID or if you don't have to get tested. So what about all the other people? And he was like, oh, just have a look on Centrelink. Mm. Just mm. have a look on Centrelink and see. And you could just, in the background, you could yeah. kind of hear the the soul, the souls, the groaning souls of Centrelink workers up and down yeah. the land going, yeah. oh, yeah. shit. Yeah, what a cruel thing to now do. Now I'm going to have to deal with this and it'll you, be yeah. my fault that I can't. Mm that I can't do this. So I just wanted to kind of put that on the table as just how far removed, you know, this government mm-hmm. is from understanding kind of what it means to, to access welfare in this in this country and that we've gone a really far, far way down that sort of that punitive, punitive understanding of what welfare is, um, which is shameful. And so there's a whole separ- there's a whole question, you know, can we kind of jump the rails on that and have a different kind of conversation? And so universal basic income is one of those things that's on the table. But, you know, a universal income with a four-day with a four day week. So I think there are kind of a couple mm-hmm. of things kind of wrapped yeah. up in there, right? To me, I think like four-day week is... Uh, sorry, just to put it on the table straight away, like I think four-day work week or reducing working hours um, with the demand for no reduction in pay mm. is much more appealing. Mm. Because it has built into it the necessity for class struggle to to happen. Mm. Whereas a lot of the time when you hear people talk about UBI and also about job guarantee programs, Mm. um, it's kind of, it's like this wonkish kind of um, technocratic way to pretend that it doesn't have to involve the redistribution of power Mm. at the basic level Mm. of society, which it does. Because at the end of the day, someone's got to pay a UBI in taxes. Um, You know, someone's got, got to pay their workers... Um, the same wages for less, less, uh, you know, time extracted out of them, and they're going to have to suck that up, and they're not going to want to do it, and there's going to have to be a struggle over that. And I think a lot of the discourse around UBI, especially because it's like the most probably technocratic and um, abstract of mm. the sort of the sort of you know platter of solutions or you know options in front of us, um, it just completely ignores the the reality of. That, that, that there will be a huge struggle over this, mm. you know, and there mm. will have to be. Um, so I think four-day work week, it's like centered around the workplace. Um, of course, it can be um, done in conjunction with, um, you know, 
better welfare programs, universal access welfare programs for people. Um, so that you know we don't have uh, a problem which is a continuing problem in the labor movement um, and in the broader left which is like the exclusion of unemployed people from these kinds mm-hmm. of discussions because mm-hmm. we can't have that because of course if, if you work for minimum wage um, for an award you know that um, your employer sees you as interchangeable with an unemployed person mm-hmm. um, and so you're the same you have the same interest we've talked about that before on mm-hmm. the show yeah. yeah so I think UBI like I'm skeptical um, and especially when I see people like um, yeah just uh, Elon Musk or um, I don't know if um, the, what's the Australian tech billionaire and I think these people are my enemies why are they saying that this is good for me so, yeah look I, I, I'm prepared to be like open on both fronts and the, and the reason for that let's, mm. just, let's just take the four day working mm. week for a while and, and, and why I think that's important um, and it links back to the conversation on you know that beautiful pink hued budget is we have to get real about some really kind of fundamental things around the way our society and economy is structured. Um, and uh, it's inherently structured on the on the free labour of women. Mm-hmm. Um, so the eight-hour working day and indeed uh, the way we're paid um, is based on this idea that there's someone at home doing all your life shit for you yep. and that person's not paid. Yep. So there's there's a reality that in there that we just need to confront and yep. and, really, and really rather quickly before we all kind of burn out or burn shit down. Either one of those. I mean, one is more cathartic than the other. Um, and we just we just haven't dealt with that. And what we can see as a result is we're sick, uh, we're stressed. Um, that we we and we consume more than we should because it's so much easier to run into the supermarket and grab a frozen meal than it is to cook something from scratch. So it's actually got environmental and kind mm. of consumption issues built into it as well. Health as um, well, mm-hmm. and 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 health issues. And you know, Ben, you and I are parents. We mm. know that those <laughs> those kids fucking exist 24 hours a day little shits um and you know that that takes work and effort and you've got relationships with your family and your community and your friends that you want to maintain and stuff that you want to do during daylight hours and you know dogs and houses and gardens and stuff and you can't squeeze that you can't squeeze that into um you know eight hours between when you're supposed to be asleep and when you're supposed to be at work. Yep. There is a fantasy that we're working eight hours a day, yeah, yeah. which is not, which has not been true for most of my working life. Mm. Um, but so so that to me, one of the things I love about this conversation is it lets us have a really serious confrontation with capitalism mm-hmm. where we say, you know what, there are other forms of production in this society and they're not all capitalist production. And you know what, they're just as important. Yeah. Um, and we should value them and create space for them in our communities and as communities we will be richer for that yep. Yep. Um, and the other thing I like about the four hour the four day working week the four hour working week four, hmm, wow now you're four, on to something the four day working week <laughs> is it's an it's actually an opportunity ironically for the private sector to go first and we've mm-hmm. seen examples of that happening so there are instances of the of individual companies going yeah okay let's just do this because they can see that there's a benefit for that now that's in the kind of the knowledge sector and the white collar sector um but I think any opportunities that there are for innovation to emerge and for front runners to emerge is quite useful. You won't get that with a UBI because mm. it, it, it won't come from that source. Yeah. I, th- I think um, one of the things that I think you really hit on really well, and oh, by the way, disclaimer, Amy really does love her children, just, <laughs> just so we're all clear about that. Um, and so do I, of course. Um, the the thing about a four-day week, it's look, it's it's basically it's a transitional sort of policy thing that you want to get your... Um, have an argument around because you're also placing class struggle and, and the workplace as part of that 
but it then lends itself to a discussion that we can have about like uh, living income for all right is really what we're talking about is that and and it is around you know um, how production is is organized um the problem with a ubi can be i think i don't see it as an either all Mm. i think it's actually what we're talking about is for me, it's summarised by living income for all, and, and work is part of that. Formalised work is, is part of that thing, but also at the same time recognising that our lives should be more, and there is a lot more to mm-hmm. our lives than turning up to sell your labour to someone, if you're well lucky enough to have enough hours, mm-hmm. or if you're one of these, um, or have labour that someone wants to buy. Well, yeah, yeah that's right. Or, capacity. Yeah, that's right. Or I mean, or the situation we we have so many white collar um, workers in this country, for example, and elsewhere in, in the world who work crazy hours, um, end up outsourcing their childcare to other people, mm. their cleaning to other people, um, don't actually have relationships with their children. Now, I personally don't think that's healthy for um, people not to have you know connections with their family because they've gone and dedicated themselves to, well, earning the money to get mm. ahead. To, that's, that's not cool. Um, mm. While at the same time, um, people who don't work, I don't there should be enough there to be able mm. to get by and, and have something to live on. Those, those, I guess, are the nuances where I'm, I'm coming from with it. Um, the technology things is really interesting. Uh, there was a great podcast recently, which is all about the um, the Luddites and hackers and, and levelers and the like on Navara Media. And one of the things, there's a book out there called... Um, breaking things at work anyway look it up on Navarro <laughs> Media it's great great conversation on that one but one of the things I was struck by is the the technology was meant to make work easy so for a lot of service sector workers they were told like, oh this technology will make things easy so from the highest paid you know technocrat worker out there who's basically held captive to a device to a retail service worker um, who's also held captive to a device mm-hmm. work hasn't gotten easier yep. it's just gotten more of it while you're there you still are playing even if you're not paid for many hours you still have less time to finish your tasks and then there's another task and another task and these machines are there beeping and making noises and then you've got to report to people that sort of explain why the algorithm is off and this just goes across the board mm-hmm. this one and I think it's, a, it's an interesting um, sort of thing about that argument like there has to be a better way to, to work and organise our work relationships and live. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have a very unhappy um, mm-hmm. societies that are unhealthy. People don't get enough exercise. They're not eating, uh, not eating good food. The rich still get rich. People feel they have no time to actually be involved in um, participating in the world around them if there's problems and the like. Um, all these things are all, all keyed in and all part of that argument about a, a four-day week or mm-hmm. a living income. I think you hit on something interesting um, about technology. Like, um, you see uh, all the stuff about how um, people working in Amazon fulfillment centers are, like, um, monitored by these horrible beeping machines and um, how their steps attract the time that they take to complete every single micro task in the job. Um, But it's very similar for a lot of people in office jobs as well. Like, because there's, like, such a huge um, tech industry and they're just kind of throwing money at anything that could possibly be used to develop a monopoly that can be abused for a bit and then just, like, you know, um, price gouged through. Um, And a lot of what they're doing is they're um, throwing money at, um, yeah, surveillance technologies for white-collar workers. Mm. There's all kinds of, like, really creepy ways, you know, that that's, that's happening. Like, a device that 
your office workers have to wear. It's like a kind of necklace, and it tracks um, things like your amount of keystrokes, your your it, it listens to you speak, tracks your heart rate, all kinds of stuff, um, and it's all couched in like health, you know, <laughs> and like this kind of rubbish <laughs> health language. Um, but in reality, they're tracking your productivity, mm. you know, to like the mi- most minute detail in the creepiest fucking possible way. Yeah. I'm having an anxiety attack just thinking about that. But basically, what I was going to say is, I I wonder, like, this could be, like, um, a future point of commonality between the the sort of very, very atomized different sections of the the working class, which at the moment have so little in common. Mm. Like, we're we're going to talk about labor soon and and politics, but, like... Sorry, let's move back to the table. Yeah, like, um, political parties' bases, especially, like, social democratic working class parties' bases are so split and Mm. so, like, Mm. atomized now. Um, these kinds of experiences could be yeah, quite yeah. to organise around. I think there's definitely something there. I have to, um, you know, show my cards, though. I'm a huge fan of technology. Mm. Um, but te- technology, you know, for good, not evil. Mm. Um, and I, to me, this is this is all tied back up into actually potentially why a UBI and a four-day week together could be useful because part of the power of a UBI is saying, you know what, I don't need to put up with your toxic shit. I can live without this job, mm. um, which puts the pressure back into workplaces to not be these toxic these toxic sites. And, uh, and um, you know, not wanting to be too naive, but some of these technologies have the capacity to actually make it easier for us to, to do to do the four-day week, to, to kind of have control over our lives. But we've definitely seen that that cuts both ways and, and generally not in favour of, you know, employees and workers because there's, <laughs> there's no power in that relationship. So how do you put the power back in the relationship so that the technology can be a liberating force instead of an oppressive an impressive force and my experience has been that technology is cut both ways um, and that it's let me do things that I needed to do in the way that I needed to do them um, but that it's also made my work life a 24 hour situation yep. instead of right. an, an eight day situation like you can't you can't escape from it um, and those um, surveillance type activities to, that is an inherent power conversation that is inherently about trust between humans and between um, power between workers and their um, employers. And what's interesting about that is that doesn't happen in every workplace. And you can see workplaces making decisions to reject or accept that technology. And that's to me, says something about the values of those workplaces. Mm. Um, but we also see the science is pretty much as fast as the technology. And we saw with COVID that as soon as people were working from home, there were all of these things going, monitor keystrokes, you know, see how much someone is blinking. And almost as quickly the research came out going, nope, that's bollocks. That's not how people work. You will drive down productivity. You will Mm -hmm. lose trust at this critical moment in your operations. And if people walk from you now, you're screwed. So don't do that. so to me, this is not about saying break stuff at work, though I kind of, <laughs> the strategic, like, oh, I dropped my phone in the toilet. Who hasn't wanted to do that? Um, but how do we put the power back in that conversation and in that relationship so that technology is a thing that actually liberates us from this rather than um, sort of putting us under the thumb? And then if we can't do that, then let's burn it all down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Now, I think we're going to continue this conversation over the next couple of weeks got a little project we're working on in Canberra uh, around a four-day week or living income or whatever and yeah it's, it's a, the inquiry it's yeah the inquiries on a four-day week. week is not on a UBI yeah. um, and I realized I didn't land my point on the UBI my other point my other point on the UBI is we need something dignified yep. for people who don't have that option of working four days a week mm-hmm. um, 
and, and and it needs to be in a in a dignified package with work so that there are there's legitimacy and respect for what people do with their time mm. when they're not working because that that those are important contributions as well and i say that as someone who's worked less than four four days a week before and because i was doing legitimate things um so i there's something about a four-day week answers a lot of our questions but it doesn't and and i think is an important contribution to valuing non-productive work though i don't like the way they came out but or you know yeah yeah um you know work 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 into the um um you know other parts of mm. our, our human economy um but it won't fix all of them because people still need money to live and there's still going to be people mm-hmm. who can't do that and i'm thinking particularly of people with disabilities and people with caring responsibilities yep. and I, I think this is why this particular issue needs to be uh, couched and, and organised around um, politics. Mm. It's it's not something like in the past people would just reach for the oh well we should go and raise it in our union. Uh, no, um, the the fact I mean, the state of the union movement is is not at all healthy in in this country at all. Uh, there's also quite a man and bit of an antipathy towards the uh, literally the, the concept of having some sort of living li- uh, living income or cutting hours I've never really kind of been able to get my head around some of that um you know antagonism towards that other than like some some people seeing as a threat to uh, someone in the union bureaucracy's um position um but then going back it's literally has to be dealt with as a political thing because the workplace has changed in so many ways there's so many people who are whether rightly or wrongly have been turned into um, small business people whether they knew it or not um, in the gig economy, or they're working in, in um, you know, a- atomized arrangements, or people who aren't working. Um, there are people who are working in small, um, you know, a lot more mm. smaller, smaller workplaces than they used to. Um, look, just the state of the working class in Australia is a lot different than, than uh, today as it was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. So we need to appeal um, to a broader mm. um, a range of people around this issue, not just to those that are in, lucky enough to be in. Um, workplaces that have have a union presence or a union organised. And I think we need to acknowledge that there's actually a huge amount of privilege in this discussion because to the extent that this is going to happen, it's actually going to happen to people like me first. It's going to happen to people working in the knowledge sector who have, you know, degrees and many years of experience and who can can negotiate this stuff. Mm. But what about workers in precarious positions? Mm. What about casualised labour? And even if there was, you know, even if we did get to the point where we've... And honestly, it's not rocket science. The formulas are already there. We can just change the formulas yeah. to say, actually, it's this much pay for this many hours, and your overtime kicks in after that. Yeah. Mm. Um, that doesn't that doesn't address yeah. the precarity issues around mm. um, around casualised labour. So going back to those issues we were talking about around superannuation, mm. but obviously with COVID, the, the big issues around um, sick leave and those sorts of things. Um, just looking at Twitter today, people talking about one of the reasons they're not getting vaccinated yet is because they are in casual labor mm-hmm. um they don't have sick leave so they need to book to get their vaccine shot on a friday yep. so they can be sick over the weekend yep. and they can't get they can't find centers that are open on fridays the fact that people are making those calculations yep. says mm. that there's actually a big conversation that we need yep. to have there um and the four day the four day working week doesn't necessarily pick that up so we need we need to kind of be interrogating the privilege mm-hmm. around this at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, last point, uh, one of the really practical things the ACC government can look at though, and this is something that we're gonna, um, I think, look at in ACT Labor. Really simple, ACT Public Service, uh, 
the number of jobs that they advertise as part-time is a joke. It is probably, I would estimate, somewhere around 5% of jobs are advertised as part-time or casual. There's a culture there of like, oh, you will and put you on, uh, we'll put you on a f- you work full time. You'll do your time, and uh, this is the the structural thing here for women. If you're a woman, you got to do your time for twelve months or so. Oh, okay, you're here now. All right, you're gonna have kids. That's great. No worries. We've got these great arrangements. Yeah, now I'll let you be part time, and now we might let you be part time after that, right? Uh, or for other workers, it might be like, oh, you've got to do your time before you're part-time. Or literally culture just saying, no, 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 you can't be part-time. This is a full-time job. It's kind of ridiculous because we look at the jobs in the ACT public sector, and I've seen this myself, being offered jobs where you're like saying, look, this is a service job that you're expecting me to do from home and maybe go into an office you know, once a week or whatever. Uh, and you're telling me you can't offer this at part-time arrangement. Like, that's... That's the kind of that's that's the very changeable, and it just sort of is it a little example of just in our own little jurisdiction of like, well, that that can be changed. We can do part time yeah. work. We can work less hours um, than what's going on. Anyway, that's yeah, and, I, and I've I've worked in organisations that flipped to all roles flexible. Um, so essentially, you had to you had to if a role couldn't be flexible, you had to show why. So the the burden mm. on on proving was in the opposite direction. I don't know how successful that was in practice, but. Um, sort of having that up front and it was it was explicitly tied to an equity conversation mm. um which i think was really was really important but i, I agree with you ben <laughs> like the, the our starting position should be we could probably do this do this part-time and if i, I think i think the number of roles that couldn't be done part-time are actually really really small mm. um and it shows a kind of crushing le- lack of imagination to, to do that and and ag- again I want to acknowledge my privilege that I, I got started in my um, in my APS career part-time um, and I, st- I started as a graduate um, part-time and everyone's going holy shit how did you do that and I'm going, I, I asked Mm. Um, and you know, happened to come across an organisation that was that was up for it. But there's no reason. And seriously, listeners, this was many millions of years ago. <laughs> this isn't new. <laughs> Not you that old, Amy. But yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it just shows that this isn't. You know, we've actually been organising ourselves like this for a very long time. It's not mm-hmm. rocket science, and, yeah. and we need to be putting some kind of lines yeah. in the sand around it. Well, mm-hmm. to that, like, I mean, if you look at like the um, the progression um, towards the eight-hour day in the nineteenth century. Mm. Like, it was only a space of about thirty years where people went from working an, a normal norm of sixteen, eighteen-hour mm. days, mm. and then gradually pushed it down to eight eight mm. hours a day in a, in like a couple of decades. Mm. Uh, so, to us, the eight-hour day like the 40 hour week feels really fixed I think yeah. um, like because we've had it actually historically for a long time in comparison to mm. you know other um, sort of organisations of the working week under capitalism modern capitalism mm. Mm. Um, we've like I think since the 70s it's become really fixed mm. you know in a way and, and those norms have become fixed in people's minds but they're actually quite uh, malleable yeah. and it can be changed and I think so, part yeah. of it and there's a whole other podcast <laughs> <laughs> is that I think some of our kind of modes of operating and when you look at bureaucracy and academia in particular, these are um, sources of employment that are drawn from kind of essentially the lower aristocracy. If people had nothing better to do with their time, could have worked for free if they wanted to mm. and had servants and, um, you know, 
well-supported mm. wives and housekeepers and drivers and we're just waiting for dad to die so they can inherit the family property so this this idea that you're kind of whiling away your time mm. um you know as a senior bureaucrat or as an academic because you're rich enough to give it that time um i think actually influences a lot of the way we think about those jobs mm. at the moment and so partly you get this kind of psych- psychological thing of of the kind of the pride in that work um it's like nah you're being gaslighted mate mm. <laughs> yeah. um, this is not how any yeah. of this works dignity and, in work what about yeah. the dignity of a day off yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the dignity of just lying down yeah. um and and i think you can see this really clearly the modern for me the modern expression of that which makes me want to set myself and others on fire is are you okay oh, um, God, yeah. which is this oh, whole man, charade of saying work's a bit stressful for you well yeah. do some yoga but not on a company time yeah. do that in your own time so in fact take your personal time to recover from the trauma of being in this workplace mm. which in fact is just another form of work for you to do yep. so that, that blows my mind that that's our solution mm. to that problem it's um, rather than saying yeah maybe you're working too much and you should not do that yeah don't don't do the thing that yeah, makes like, you feel screw, bad screw are you okay <laughs> yeah. so are you going home now yeah yeah, yeah. that's right what is what does your EBA say oh, yeah. well, oh you don't have one what does the awards mm. say yeah. oh have you t- spoken to your union I mean mm. those better are. questions yeah. Mm. yeah yeah well look folks um, I've been brimming with pride all day today <laughs> Uh, it's ever since I found out that my boy, my boy Ben has had his first piece published in uh, Jacobin Australia, which is fantastic. So, Ben, do you want to tell us all about your piece that you had up in the uh, in the paper today? Yeah, no, thank you, Jacob. Um, thank you to Jacob and to the Jacobin for um, publishing a, a piece. And a couple of months or weeks in, in, um, involved in yeah, some time to getting that one together. So you can check it out at the Jacobin. It's called Without a Mass Membership, Australia's Labor Party is on the Road to Nowhere, um, which, you know, they come up with a heading there. But uh, anyway, it's good fun. So it's about um, primarily about the crisis facing uh, labor um, around the country, but in particular honing in on talking about New South Wales labor. So I, I guess the key thing for me, uh, drawing on a lot of, um, great conversations that I've had with um, Osman Chu, who's a fantastic um, advocate for the left in New South Wales, and Matt Byrne, who's overseas right now, but he's been the secretary. The yeah, friends mm-hmm. of the show. Um, big hello to them. Is talking about the 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 structural problems that exist, in particular um, the New South Wales situation being one that really needs to change. The fact that it's an organisation that uh, won't publish how many members it's got. Uh, in a sort of up-to-date way. Uh, its conferences are famous for being uh, incredibly uh, gerrymandered and undemocratic. They actually elect delegates to the conference it's for, the, for itself, like it's at the conference. Um, there are all sorts of very strange things. But what we get to and really talking about the piece here is like instead of, I guess, with the current situation, it's just blown up the other week in, in um, upper... Uh, Hunter, which is the name of the seat, federal uh, state um, by-election in New South Wales, where the Nationals, who are our agrarian um, country party, if you like, had held that seat um, well, continuously since 1910, uh, had a swing to them and returned it a candidate. But however, it was used as a basically a, a symptom of a simmering in 
fight in the parliamentary party of New South Wales, which saw in the end the, the scalp of the leader of the New South Wales Labor Party, parliamentary party, um, Joni McKay, mm. uh, with the primary vote in the Upper Hunter dropping to around 21%. Um, funnily enough, that wasn't the worst they'd ever done in that seat. It was it also, a 3% swing against them or something like that? Yeah, yeah. But like even 21% wasn't the worst they'd actually done in that seat. But it did not go well for Jody, uh, Jody's leadership in terms of that. And I think what's happening right now is we're seeing this crisis in New South Wales, just another example of the chickens coming home to roost. We're talking about an organisation that's primarily controlled by a number of cliques. It's highly bureaucratic and centralised. It's anti-democratic. It doesn't actually want or even... Um, it doesn't want membership other than your money. Mm. You can check out the website there for that one. Ask your money, but um, as I've put it, they'll um, show you a picture of who sits on their administrative committee, um, but can't actually provide you with the information of where your sub-branch meets, who the contact person is, and um, you know how to get involved or what you can do uh, as part of being a member, a member of the party. Um, and we have this sort of crisis in, in New South Wales where in regional seats, um, more and more the, the base that Labor used to rely upon in, in regional New South Wales has been eroded away. Uh, minor parties, whether to the right or the left or independents, are getting more and more of a sway and Labor's in a deep crisis there. The implications federally are really bad for a federal Labor, um, for federal Labor with a federal election coming up. And my point really is, is that you need a mass membership. You need a mass membership that is empowered to actually make decisions about what their policy is, what they believe, what they want to have seed. It needs to be engaged and involved in the local community that they're from and needs to have a mass membership that you can actually get decent enough candidates to uh, run as your representatives. So I think a classic example, I think it really sums it up, was um, the by-election last year for the federal MP for Eden Monero, Christy McBain, who, look, you know, good. She was from her local community. She was a uh, former mayor of uh, Bega, yeah, which is fantastic. Uh, and, you know, represented the community there. But McBain was not a member of New South Wales Labor. Um, before her selection as a candidate and it speaks volumes about the shortage of ALP activists in the area uh, and also you know who basically um, in my experience I've worked with people in southern New South Wales over some some years um, you know small labour sub branches held together by maintaining an ageing um, membership um, completely disencouraged by the, the head office um, basically running things through putting things up on local news um, papers with sticky tape and paper and not allowed to put things on social media, being told that they can't publicise things on social media. I did interestingly have an, in, an interesting interaction um, the other week because I really wanted to test it out again, which was uh, asking a question to a Facebook page called Bateman's Bay Labour, um, saying, hi, I'm Ben, I'm, you know, interested in transferring my membership to um, New South Wales. It's true, I actually would like to move down the South Coast, you know, genuinely. Uh, what do I need to, where do you guys meet? You know, how often do you meet and what do you do? Because I noticed this page and it's like, oh, okay, cool, you, there's a Facebook page mm. for Bateman's Bay. Uh, nothing, but this page does routinely put out, you know, comms from, you know, Central New South Wales. Yeah. <laughs> but this is, you know, this is what you get from New South Wales Labor is they are not interested in actually a membership. John Faulkner, the, the former senior left senator from New South Wales, who was um, an instrumental contributor to the um, Brax Carr Faulkner Review in 2010, which had some far-reaching reforms, only a few of which were brought about. I think he said it well. Um, 
it was um, when he was talking about New South Labor, it was uh, like us on Facebook, but leave us alone. And that's the sort of attitude there. So um, the other thing in the article, which you can check out more, is just talking about how um, my personal disdain uh, is the fact that in regional centres, what ends up happening is people being imported from metropolitan areas, but more being someone from Canberra, people from the ACT being hit up routinely for New South Wales elections, whether federal or state, um, because New South Wales just doesn't have activists in those mm-hmm. towns. So you're importing paid people, more often than not, to go to um, you know, tear little towns and all the rest of it. And then funnily enough, people in those towns know who you are, as in you're the, just the latest blow-in. Mm-hmm to tell them to vote for a brand that they don't actually see as, you know, representing them or they have no real engagement with. So mm. um, I think that's probably, you know, a bit of a uh, overview mm-hmm. of what, yeah. it's, what, it, what, it, what, it, what it was sort of about. So um, check that out at the at the Jacobin. Um, well, so for me, like, if, the, if it's a question of building uh, sub-local branches, small branches... Um, it's probably going to have to come down to small, local, relevant campaigns, you know, things that really touch on people's actual lives, you know. Um, Like uh, in the ACT, I think there's been a couple of things here um, that have just really galvanised people in the last uh, two election cycles. Um, The light rail is one of them, um, and although I'm not sure how many people that caused to sign up to the party, but... um, and there's some other things like, because, um, yeah, like we, we were all um, in varying degrees active in the last ACT election. And um, the, uh, for example, just um, the needs of people around hydrotherapy in the ACT um, became a, a huge rallying cry for huge numbers of people. And small things, well, seemingly small things mm. like that, especially if you don't, if you don't routinely access services mm. like that, it seemed almost trivial. But they're huge to people's lives. And actually, that's the kind of thing that um, can actually politically galvanise somebody to get involved with a local branch. And if you're a local, you know, branch activist well, who wants to see more people coming into their sub-branch and get, getting them involved, it's those kinds of campaigns that people can actually see change in front of them happen. And so if that's the first thing that you interact with when you join the party, then that's a really positive experience that will only beget, you know, better deeper future engagement whereas if you join the party say you're like one of the many people who joined labor after um the 2019 election federal election loss um a lot of those people like they had the experience you've you've described right signing up trying to find out where to go to a sub-branch meeting can't find out um what does this what does this subcommittee do uh um here's one sentence on what it does where the friends of um the republic of ireland um subcommittee or whatever (laughs) Um, when do you meet? Uh, we'll let you know. Bye. And Leap years. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's it's and that just people just like their membership laps, you know, they just cancel their direct direct effort and they don't stay in the party. They don't stay involved, or they is in in a way what's worse is they disengage, but they keep paying their membership, mm. and then they're just like, you know, empty numbers in a sub branch that shouldn't have them or whatever. So mm. it's not good. So. Yeah, so that's my prescription, is more small local campaigns. And that means that, like, um, the executives of state and territory branches need to, like, be have put pressure put on them to enable those small mm. campaigns to happen mm. and not get in the way of them and stifle them because they don't, you know, necessarily fit with a, some, mm. you know, comms strategy, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, 100% agree. And I think to that I'd add transparency. Mm, 100%. Um, We talked about the sort of the power and legitimacy of power of local campaigns um, right after the ACT election. And I I like to think the ACT is special, but it's not that special. Um, And so I think think you're absolutely right. If we can't localise the point of Labor Party membership to people's experience in their Mm. communities, then it's just an irrelevancy. Um, But I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I think the transparency issues that you raise, um, Ben, in your article are really important. And I think we're lucky in the ACT that we've got a pretty good amount of transparency about sort of what happens where um but i'd go further and say let's just dissolve let's keep dissolving bits i think there are still too many barriers to entry and i think there are still too many ways of killing learning and debate and so Mm. it's kind of oh you've got an idea put that in a policy committee it's like well no why don't we facilitate conversation and discussion and um i think i think one of the things that's probably not as bad in in canberra as it is in in um you know other jurisdictions is this need to control debate so you kind of this idea that you've got to kind of bake the full thing and have a conclusion before you can let the membership at it it's like you know what maybe let's just open some space for people to learn Mm -hmm. um for people to discuss things we don't have to game the whole thing Um, for your critique or for your critique and to give people the opportunity to practice sort of how they feel in those sorts of leadership positions yep. and, and so that they might start to think of themselves as representatives of the party who would be willing to, to run. Yeah. Um, sort of, But at the moment, sort of our, our practice is to really pre-cook stuff, yep. um, kind of take all of the... Uh, um, uh, spontaneity and learning and reflection out of it, um, and and have it have it um, you know be really tightly controlled. And you know I've been I'm sure I've been guilty of that myself because sometimes you want to get shit done and pre-cooking it is the way to do that. But I, I'm increasingly of the view that we're taking away opportunities for people to develop their skills mm. and and to. Um, be confident in those skills and to connect on important issues and to help us understand them better. And uh, you mentioned Osmond and Osmond makes some really important points about the need to diversify the party. Um, and you can't diversify d- diversify a party if you're not actually willing to let diverse voices exist yep. in a diverse, uncontrolled space. Yep. Yep. Um, and I guess, the, I guess the other thing, you know, the final reflection I would put on that is if if you're if you're at all activist minded, if you're at all community minded, if you've at all identified something that you want to get done for your community, yep. and the Labor Party looks like a harder place to achieve that than some other space that you could be creating to the side of that or with another party, then why would you be in the Labor mm, Party? Why is that where you would put your time? Yeah. We've mm. just spent however long talking about a four day week. The Labor Party should be the most efficient and effective place for people to put their energies yep. in transforming their communities. And if it's not, like, I'm not going to blame people for turning away from that. That's right. I, I think. That the the point around empowerment versus power um, power is is really the key thing, and I would I would say to people who um, who are too concerned with power and winning positions that you will not hold on to that power in the medium in the long term if that is all you're obsessed with. Um, in the longer term, you will decline and you won't win and 
and then you're hollow. You're completely hollowed out organisation. That's what we see. That's Exhi- the lesson from New South a. Wales. <laughs> like that's party. what we got. The New South um, Wales party. <laughs> New South Wales polling at 23% primary vote. Um, you know, getting 21% in Upper Hunter, yeah, okay, Upper, fine. But I think that polling, I think, said a lot. And the fact that critics of what was going on with, with you know, with New South Wales Labor were just obsessed with the leadership. Like, oh, we need, just need to get rid of Jody. Oh, she's not cutting through. Three rounds um, deck chairs? Yeah, let's just, you know, have another little power game about the deck chairs. Yeah. Or, or or we have the sort of the silly games that go on about, oh, you know, oh, we need to run this candidate. We want to, um, we really desperately need to run another candidate mm-hmm. for this thing. And you're going, well, why? Why do we? For who? For whose interest? Or, well, and, and what's, you know, what's the... What does that look like? Yeah. So uh, to me, to me, there's a lot of this wrapped up in um, re- sort of risk management yeah. and trust. Yeah. Um, and you you raise this a little bit in your article, Ben, that sort of one of the um, impacts of a kind of narrow membership is that we're not actually having conversations about how we could be a more progressive left party. Yeah. Um, but it also means that we're not engaging in any kind of risky. Um, conversation with the community about sort of what kind of Australia we want um, because it's all about nah I mean god we all grew up during fucking small target and look how well that's turned out for everyone we've lost the capacity to be interesting in front Mm. of the Australian people and it turns out you know we've got Netflix so maybe we should just deal with that as well and there's another subscription that we might not use but keep paying but you know it's not the Labor Party so that's fine yeah yeah I think it's about the same cost actually Netflix versus the Labor Party yeah Hmm. yeah yeah and I, I think that, look, uh, one of the other things I wanted to say about it, which I, I was able to draw on um, the fantastic work done by comrades who were around in 2016 and the lead up to that. Uh, when Matt Byrne became the secretary of ACT Labor, it was a really, it was a nod to the work that had gone back to uh, 2012, where a bunch of very much independent um, lefty, some of which had worked for unions but got in trouble at times for, for doing things, campaigning for Yvette Berry at the time. But their model very much they draw on this sort of community organising thing. But they were kind of really desperately trying to do it very seriously in terms of um, getting people out to, to the... Now, it's not controversial. It's like, yeah, of course you dock, knock on doors. But what, what they did um, was so systematic and so um, well organised that... I'm just blown away at the numbers that that were there. Like there were, you know, volunteers in 2016 during that that year long period um, held 900,000 conversations with people. Now to give you an idea, there are only 306,000 electors that year. So like basically like three conversations, recorded conversations by, that's amazing. To get that number of activists to actually do that amount of stuff, you actually need a membership that is like, well, you need a membership, but you need to be have a party that is open that's transparent, that encourages people to join, gives them a reason, mm-hmm. also gives them a say. We get to elect people and stuff. Gives them something to do. Gives them something to do. Mm. And lets people go, off they go. Let them go. Off they don't. Now, um, there's certainly not, it's by no means there needs to be more to continue to open things up and make it more democratic. But I think that's what um, people fail to understand when they concentrate too much on power and position is that you're not going to stay there if you, unless you can actually bring people with you and if you're going to behave in ways that are just going to discourage um, people who aren't paid to be there because heaven knows there's still too many of them who dominate parts of the party even uh, even in the Socialist Republic of the ACT um, they're the ones that are going to actually just you know wreck it for everyone really um, you know people aren't going to turn out. They're not going to vote for who you want. They're not going to turn out and and campaign. 
they're going to vote with their feet, they're going to leave. I mean, you beauty, you might still manage to, you know, be in your little spot and have that position of power, so to speak, but what's the point of being in opposition? Because you are going to end up in opposition. And what's, what's the point of being in an organisation where you only exist so that, what, you can be the boss and tell people how progressive you are or how progressive your lifestyle is not, and offer nothing transformative? That's, that's the sort of interesting situation, that sort of um, a bit of tension that's been coming on and developing. But that's, you know, that's why we have to get back to the real basic stuff, which is grow a membership, be open, be transparent, be democratic, genuinely democratic about um, wanting to bring people in and have a say. So that's part of the reasons, you know, why I wrote the piece and all the rest of it. And we see those problems over the border. And I think it's, um, there are, gen we can generalise about um, the rest of the country, but um, Australia is a federation and it's a mixed bag in terms of how bad it is. And it does go back to what Jacob's saying about, you know, organising around local issues. And I, I think, you know, we'll continue this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right. Um, did any of you have anything else you want to add or should we wrap it up there? I feel like that's a very good okay. prescription yeah, you've absolutely. laid out there, Comrade Ben. All right. Thank, thank you. Um, might, right. might mention a couple of references for, yeah. for people. We'll put some up on notes. So um, Alison Pennington's piece on uh, why I won't swallow the pink budget pill was in the New Daily. Uh, Melbourne Calling is a podcast put out by um, the old St well, Stephen Jolly, um, some lefties well, doing he's that. not whining about uh, there being uh, graffiti on the streets of Fitzroy. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit odd. He's whining that there yeah. is graffiti or there yeah. isn't yeah. graffiti? Yeah, he doesn't like the graffiti. No, he likes the, Steve doesn't like He likes the commissioned street art. He's very not peculiar. The, not the graffiti. Yeah, he's interesting. It's uh, a whole extra podcast right there. <laughs> that's worth checking out. Uh, breaking things on at uh, breaking things at work. Check it out in Navarra Media, and you got my piece. Without a mass membership, Australia's Labor Party mm. is on the road to nowhere, which is on, was published today in the Jacobin. Mm. So check all those things out. And oh, and Bill Gates' vaccine monster in the New Republic. Yeah, that was yeah, awesome. That's good. Um, so yeah, that's about it. Um, thanks so much for being on again. Thanks yeah. for having me. Thank you, Amy. Lots we'll of have, fun. We'll continue on have, have another on you again. I hope. Yeah. Yeah. See you next time. Yeah. yeah. See ya. Thank you.